2: Hello and welcome to the Second Chance podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. During the COVID 19 pandemic and lockdowns, a lot of us have moved less and eaten more. This can be a result of comfort eating, stress, or even boredom. Dr. Rupi joins us in this slightly different episode to discuss overall body health and the impact food can have on our mental well being as well as physical. A change in lifestyle really can provide us with a second chance at life, just as it did for Dr. Rupi himself. The first thing I wanted to ask you was about who you are, what you do, why you do what you do, and where you do what you do so just paint the picture of of who Rupee is for my audience, who are generally, I mean, they're going to be quite surprised by our conversation, because my guests on this show are normally perpetrators, victims of crime, or they are associated with crime in some way, shape or form, or with second chances. You know, they've, they've come down on, on a bad side of their life. What I think is really fascinating about talking to you on the show is that there is a different take to that, and it's all about lifestyle, health, medicine, food. So I'm sure my audience will be desperately keen to find out where the connection is. So let's make that connection. But first, introduce yourself for me, Rupee.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's a it's going to be a bit of a key change, I reckon, for you given the roster of your previous guests. But so I, I'm a I'm a doctor. I've been a doctor for about 12 years now. Trained as a general practitioner working a doing a master's in nutritional medicine. And my whole setup and my whole sort of mission is to educate and inform and inspire people to eat their way to health. And I see food and what you put on your plate is almost like a gateway drug to the wider aspects of lifestyle that allow us to live healthier, happier lives. And I think particularly wellness as it stands today has a bit of a, a sort of elite edge to it it's a bit unattainable it's you know something that is for the largely white middle classes and and that's why it's become popular but when you look at the roots of ancient medicine whether it be ayurveda or chinese medicine you know this is something that was practiced across different populations and one of the things that i'm trying to sort of dovetail is that connection between food, mental well-being, physical well-being, and also making it ex- as accessible to people as possible. And, and I guess sort of my experience and the, the reason why you have a conventionally trained doctor who spent six years at medical school, another five, six years in training in general practice, and then you know six plus years uh, post that as well in, in practice. The reason why I've gone down this path is because I was a patient myself. When I became a junior doctor, so back in two thousand and nine, I was working in um basildon uh essex um which is is known as bas vegas <laughs> to anyone that's been there you know you've got the the club there and uh like um some some really infamous bars and stuff and um I was working at um the district general hospital it was a big district general hospital super stressful new role as a junior doctor in a a busy environment learning things on the job completely different to how I was trained you know you learn a lot of things in the job and three months into it I was working on a long shift it was like 10 or 11 days on the trot about 6 p.m at night bleep casually going off I was writing in the nursing notes and um, I noticed my heart was was beating exceptionally fast It was around 200 beats per minute, as I found out later. And it took about 5, 10 minutes before I went to my boss and I said to her, look, would you mind feeling my pulse? I feel like I'm going a bit fast here. And within half an hour, stripped of my clothes, bleep taken off me, hooked up to a cardiac monitor. And I was found to be in something called atrial fibrillation, which is where your heart beats irregularly. And in my case, up to 200 beats per minute. There are a number of ways in which you treat that either with an electrocardioversion, which is what you see in the movies with the paddles on the chest, um, or drugs. And fortunately, I didn't need to have a resuscitation attempt. But that that was the start of my journey as a patient. So in this split second, on one side, I was a doctor, you know, casually walking along the wards, stethoscope around my neck, you know, brand new doctor, sense of authority. And then the next, I was in the hospital bed. And I was a patient and and I experienced all those emotions of vulnerability, embarrassment, you know, just, just being wheeled down the hospital corridors, um, something that I never really would have thought about, even to this day, had I not been a patient. Extremely embarrassing, really embarrassing. And what I thought might have been a one-off episode um, perhaps because I hadn't drunk enough water or I was stressed out or I was fatigued, actually um, happened two to three times a week. And I that was the start of my journey of, of being a, a long-term patient. So I, I saw a whole bunch of different cardiologists. Um, I was put on medications, uh, drugs to slow my heart rate. I had all the different investigations you can imagine. So cardiac MRI, echocardiogram, I, I was a very privileged position i went to one of the the best medical schools in the country and so i had access to some incredible professors of of cardiology so i was i was offered something called an ablation which for for your listeners is is where you put a a large wire into one of the major vessels and goes into your heart and you burn an area around the pulmonary vein which stops misfiring cells which is one of the potential triggers for atrial fibrillation everything else had been ruled out like electrolyte disturbances or changes in the structure of the heart, all of that was, was found to be normal. And so I was 100% going to go down this route, right? Conventionally trained medic, spoke to loads of people, loads of second opinions, and the one person who said that I should really look at my diet and lifestyle was my mum. And my mum is not a medic. She's, uh, she's not trained. She's a mum. She's a mum, exactly. She's a mum. <laughs> She's uh, obviously come from an Indian family. You have those sort of values of Ayurvedic medicine that kind of steep through the family tradition. She's the matriarch as well of the family, and really to appease her, if I'm honest, Raphael is. I, I said to her, "I was like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do this whole diet lifestyle thing for you." And I spoke to my cardiologist, and they gave me the blessing. But in my head, I was gearing up to have this procedure in six months time and long story short i know i've just been talking at you now for about 10 minutes but um long story short i uh i started very simply did a little bit of research changed up my cereals in the morning stopped eating the soggy sandwiches in the hospital canteen focused on yoga and meditation something i was taught how to do when i was a teenager around my a-levels the one thing i didn't change was this drive to be a doctor my sense of purpose always to be in medicine. I never gave up my job or took time out or anything like that. And over the course of a year and a half, AF episodes went from two to three times per week to zero. And I haven't had episodes since. And so to answer your question, the reason why I do what I do is to really answer myself the questions that I posed back then. Why don't I know about this? And why wasn't I taught about the value of nutrition and lifestyle at medical school? And that's kind of how the doctor's kitchen has sort of evolved from from those asking those two questions. And now it, it basically imbues everything I do from the nonprofit stuff, the um, the public facing stuff, the books, and, and all the rest of it. But also what I what I do on a one to one basis when I see patients as well.
2: What an incredible story i mean was your was your lifestyle unhealthy you don 't strike me I mean now obviously you 've changed your lifestyle, but you know as a medical student, somebody who aspired to become a doctor I and i suspect. Millions of others uh, think that you guys see it all. You know, you see the fat flowing through the veins that blocks the arteries. You see the things that causes people health problems. And so you're the first. We always suspect this. Even when you go into a GP surgery and your, your GP is slightly overweight, I often wonder why, how. They're often telling people they need to lose weight to be healthy, etc. Yet they are victims of their own I say victims, but, you know, there are lots of conditions that can turn people to be obese, et cetera. But was you living a, a, a sort of negative lifestyle? And by that, I mean eating McDonald's. And you, you mentioned soggy sandwiches. So were you contributing to your your bad health? Because this condition that you talk about, Rupee, seemed to have come out of, of nowhere mm. and you discovered it on the job, yet you'd been training up until that point to be on on the job.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good question I, and I don't think the health and the lifestyle of medics and anyone working in healthcare for that matter gets discussed as often as it should. So, as a medical student, you know, you're in med stu- med school for 6 years and you definitely have a culture of drinking I wouldn't be I wouldn't class myself or wouldn't have classed myself as someone who had a drinking problem or anything like that, but certainly a month might be punctuated by a couple of weekends of excess alcohol. Probably nothing different to my colleagues and no no worse, no more probably probably more on the on the less side of things I would say wasn't overweight had a normal quote unquote diet. So, you know, a normal diet today might be a meal deal, you know, with sandwich, couple of quid, uh, a fizzy drink and some crisps and cereal in the morning and, and, you know, maybe a couple of veg and meat in the evening, you know, th- that that it, that is generally a normal diet and something that I was probably part of prior to becoming a junior doctor as well. There is certainly an issue, and I was a non-smoker and you know, not overweight, no other medical issues, and you're right, it is unusual for a 24-year-old to have atrial fibrillation. It's usually something that we see in a latter age group above the age of 55, but there is an issue with uh, drug-taking, smoking, poor diet, poor unhealthy lifestyles. You can excuse it because of it, uh, it being a result of a stressful lifestyle which is why it's mirrored in other professions, whether it be law or financial institutions, banking, whatever. But it is sort of inexcusable considering the amount we know about how much of an impact those kind of lifestyles can have on the body and the mind. And whilst uh, working as a junior doctor as well, my my lifestyle was was pretty much unchanged i would say um if anything i would be eating more regularly because i had routine and i would be going out less um, because of the work so but it it is an issue if you look at the statistics across medical professionals this includes nursing staff as well as doctors as well as anyone else working allied health professionals perhaps less physios were more likely to be overweight we're more likely to have cardiovascular disease we're more likely to have mental health issues we're at high risk of suicide. We generally die younger than the general population. so there is a huge issue with the people who are in a position and have been put in a position to help others where we don't properly look after ourselves and, and we as a community don't look after them as well and I think you know over the last year and a half we're sort of trying to redress the balance we're putting a lot more emphasis on looking after healthcare workers but a lot more needs to be done and it's one of the reasons why I started and we'll talk about it later if you like but one, one of the reasons why I started culinary medicine it, it's an effort to it's a non-profit where we teach medical students and healthcare professionals the value and the foundations of clinical nutrition but also we teach them how to cook because once you become motivated and you practice the art of cooking you're more likely to look after yourself you're more likely to think about the practicalities of advising someone to change up their diet and also understand the barriers to entry as well whether that be accessibility cost food insecurity but also just the nuts and bolts of how you prepare a healthy meal for your family
2: your whole attitude changed while you were lying on that bed as a patient and it made you think deeply about about your lifestyle although it was mum's advice that you needed to change your diet you didn't get that from the practitioners who were treating you at the time and you say that by changing what you ate and how you you led your life you were able to stop the issue I can't pronounce the way you describe it the, the I, uh, my apple watch actually tells me about this affiliation or whatever oh, it's yeah called. yeah I I know, yeah beating of my heart yeah. I don't know if it's the same thing but that's what I was thinking that's about uh, as close to the medicine I get but but you talk about you change your diet and it was by changing your diet you were able to stop your condition what was the connection? How were you able to make the connection between diet change, what you consumed, and, and the condition that, that was threatening your life?
1: Yeah, so a lot of things, and, and basically over the last few years, I've been trying to retrospectively figure out how on earth this is possible, right? So we'll take the perspective of diet, um, and I think from the outset, you know, it's, it's most likely to be multifactorial, So how I change my mindset, how I change my my physical approach to health, as well as my, my dietary and nutritional approach to health. We'll focus on diet for now. So when I changed up eating more plants, eating more fibers, eating more nuts and seeds, I would have increased my fiber intake. And that would have had a positive net impact on the microbes that live in and around our body, but largely concentrated in the large intestine it's become very popular now but a lot of people have been talking about the subject for decades and if you look at ancient medicine and and even chinese medicine everything the root cause is always in the gut has always been determined and described as in the gut and when you increase the fiber uh, intake you give your microbes that are largely bacteria but also things like viruses nematodes fungi they all live within us you give them substrate you essentially give them food so they can flourish and thrive and what this does is it increases the diversity of the population of these microbes that are absolutely inseparable from health so they modulate inflammation they balance your sugar level in your blood they create short chain fatty acids that nourish the lining of your colon which mean that your it means that your immune system is a lot more supported and they also create neurotransmitters that have both direct and indirect impacts on your mental well being, it's absolutely fascinating how much of an impact increasing fiber intake can have across multiple parameters. But one of the reasons why I think that might be related to my condition is because inflammation could be one of the triggering impacts for an AF episode. It hasn't been determined in clinical studies of yet. It's not been well researched, but it's definitely one of those things that could have an impact. The other thing is uh, having a largely plant based diet. I'm not vegan or vegetarian, but I eat probably 85, 90% plants. And that may have made me a little bit more nutrient replete when it comes to plant chemicals. So, most people have heard of the 21, 22 essential nutrient, micronutrients, so your vitamins and your minerals. But actually, in nature, there are thousands of plant chemicals that you might have heard of, like resveratrol or quercetin in an apple, allicin in garlic. But there are literally thousands of these different plant chemicals that you find in whole food. And so by increasing the consumption of these types of foods, you're literally flooding your body full of these chemicals that we've naturally evolved to be uh, consuming. And that might have had an impact, again, on inflammation levels, but also making sure that my nutrient status was replete. My blood levels were completely fine when they looked at magnesium, potassium, calcium. But your bloods can only determine a significant deficiency. So those mild turbulations in in, uh, deficiency might not be picked up by your typical blood tests as well. And the other things I think really do pertain to lifestyle. So sleep hygiene, I was doing night shifts. Obviously, that's going to cause disruptions to my circadian rhythm. But if you have a regular, I always try to make sure I was tucked up in time when I wasn't on night shifts. If you have a regular routine, you're definitely going to be having an impact on your stress levels. You combine that with meditation and stress relieving techniques like yoga and flow, again, it has a much better impact on your overall psychological well-being. And we know that anxiety and other mental health um, states can actually induce heart palpitations which could trigger and cascade into something like an irregular heartbeat too so that those are just some of the ways in which I've really thought about how this could happen and I think the other important thing is I'm just an anecdote right i'm I'm n of one so just because I was able to achieve this doesn't necessarily mean that someone else of a similar sort of ethnicity, similar age, can achieve the same results. But my whole get-up is put your body in the best environment as possible and you will be surprised at how health can flourish. Um, It's this concept of salutogenesis or rewilding. You've got to put cells, you've got to put your body in the right environment and good things will hopefully stem from that. And there is a lot of sort of value in in that as a as an analogy for a number of different things beyond physical health, I think and maybe we could talk about that in terms of you know the environment that we keep people in, the impact of nature versus urbanization and and how this has an impact on on mental well-being as well.
2: When, when you say, you know, putting your body in the best environment or giving it the best chance, I mean, how do people do that? I mean, you was The Doctor's Kitchen your first book, which is one of those that that, that tries to guide people? Because it's such a challenge, isn't it, Rupee? I mean, there are so many different lifestyle, health sort of arguments out there of what works, what doesn't work, what's best, what's not best. I mean, it's a no-brainer that if you eat something that's green – it's healthy, or, or, or you, you drink something as simple as water, you're doing something good for your body. But it's quite challenging for, for the majority of people who have been brought up in a culture or in an environment where they are used to fast food or because of the work that they do. How do you try and convince people that the connection between what you eat your stress levels, your mental health, especially now under the the recent pandemic and the stresses and strains that people have been put under. Uh, And, you know, it's quick and easy, isn't it? You're sitting there, you're bored, you reach the chocolates. I do. Or you reach for the easy stuff. You know, you're tired of cooking. Some people have embraced it, but, but because they've been locked up in their own homes for such a long period of time... They probably got bored of doing what, what is the right thing, which is discovering new ways of, of eating. How do you try and convince people in your day-to-day approach that nutrition is key to your mental health and, and your physical well-being?
1: So the doctor's kitchen was really born out of me trying to scale the conversations that I was having as a general practitioner. And I remember vividly there was this this um, patient who really triggered me wanting to put out videos and, and recipes and all the rest of it. And I and I sat down with him and, you know, he was trying to look after his his diet, potentially improve some arthritis, prevent pre diabetes. And I, I gave him an oats recipe and I was like, you know, just add some oats, add this, add some nuts, and and off you go. And as just before he left, he said to me, just one more thing, doctor. How do you cook oats? And, and it just dawned to me the penny dropped there it was like we have lost the fundamentals of cooking it's not something that is talked about enough at schools it's not something that is encouraged enough from a, from childhood so the expectation of me going in as a doctor and just saying add some beans to your diet eat some greens drink some water it's completely it's it's completely over the top it's it's unachievable for a lot of people and so the first kind of series of books and, and the content out there was really trying to educate people on the science behind why nutrition and lifestyle can have such a fantastic and impactful change on our bodies and our mental well-being. And it's okay to just start with the information, but then you have to figure out how and how you actually do this on a day-to-day basis and can, can uh, create sustainable changes and consistency the whole way through. And it really taps into the the, the challenge of, of behavior change and motivational interviewing. So for one person, I might be, so I, have a, I had a conversation with a Sri Lankan guy uh, just last week. And for him, he's got inflammatory bowel disease. He's eating junk food uh, out of necessity because he's working despite pandemic. He's working on the job. He doesn't have access to healthy options where he lives. For him, a change might be, just bringing something with him in a Tupperware the night before, one day a week. And I literally mean that one day a week. He can eat you know, whatever junk food he wants the rest of the time. But if that one day a week he can commit to that, then that is a stepping stone. You've got a hook right there that he will be able to maintain. And he can say to himself, this is what I'm going to be doing. And I know it sounds insignificant and really small. But it's those incremental small changes that you build and you stack upon each other that compound over time. So most people will think about January as that sort of new year, new year. You're going to do all these changes. You're going to start running, cycling, meditating, changing up your diet. And by day 14, January the 14th, it's quitter's day, right? you've, You've fallen off the wagon. And it's because you've set your expectations so high. And it's no wonder just, just our brains aren't built to deal with that change and the capacity for that, for that movement that quickly. So you've really got to go really, really simple. And you've got to annotate it and personalize it to the person in front of you. And that could be, you know, I use that example by junk food. It could be as simple as reducing someone's canned fizzy pop consumption by one a day. And they, they usually drink two or three. If you can commit to that, then we can go to one or then zero. Everyone's different. So I've had a number of smokers, for example, who have just quit just like that, like never touched a cigarette in 10 years thereafter. Other people need that stepwise change. So you've got to personalize it according to the motivators too. And, and the other thing I think that you're you, you're hitting on as well, which is a very, very important discussion, is food insecurity and the accessibility and how that drives the inequalities in society that we see. So I'm in a very privileged position to work in the NHS where I see people from all walks of life, whether they grew up in a council estate and they have no knowledge of food versus some people who love food, have hundreds of cookbooks, and they want to educate themselves even more on a healthy lifestyle. And the conversations that I have in clinic or even in A&E with those two different people completely, completely worlds apart because you, really you really have to change it to that person in front of you. So it's no point in me saying to you know, someone who can't afford to have spinach every day, eat some spinach every day, it might be a case of, okay, well, let's look at the cheapest, most nutrient-dense ingredients that you like, that you would like to put into your food every day. Um, and that could be frozen peas. It could be frozen spinach. It could be something as simple as adding just one color to your dish every single day. And so, w- what I'm trying to get across is that it's those little changes that compound over time, just like a financial bank account where you add a pound every week. You know, that's going to have the incremental changes. Not like a big flashy diet. And in fact, I'm I'm dietary agnostic. I, I don't subscribe to a low carb or a paleo or a vegan diet you really have to annotate it to the person in front of you there is no such thing as a one size fits all
2: that's that's really interesting i i'm, I'm kind of liking it to you know giving your body a second chance at, at healthy lifestyle and you've answered the next question that i was going to ask which is you know different cultures have different diets don't they they have different staple diets you know whether it's caribbean food indian food or or bland british food i don't know a sunday roast or whatever it is you know no british food is great no, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, uh, but, but all the ingredients are the same you know whether you use a particular ingredient in rice and peas as opposed to um, a madras or, or whatever it is What what's your position in terms of vitamins as in supplements as opposed to the solid foods
1: yeah I, so i i've got opinions on Supplements. So, I think they can be beneficial, but they're not necessarily a necessary part of a healthy lifestyle, with the exception of a few. So, from the perspective of mental health, cardiovascular health, and brain health, I think omega 3 supplementation is a good thing to entertain. Um, Omega 3 being the long chain fatty acids that we find in oily fish. But if I was to say to most people, eat oily fish every single week, twice a week, it, it can be quite costly, and obviously there's the taste factor. And, you know, I, I've had countless conversations with parents with with young kids, and they're like, "You try getting anchovies into this one," <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you know, you, you really have to make it realistic. So I think omega three EPA and DHA supplementation does have benefit, and I would recommend that for for most people. Vitamin D3, particularly for, for those of us like ourselves who've got darker complexions, would be beneficial year-round. So, And that's vitamin D3 because, particularly in the UK where we're at a, a northern latitude, the type of UV sunlight that we attain here, even during the summer months, can, is not sufficient to convert vitamin D in our skin, which is essentially where we get vitamin D naturally from. There are some dietary sources like mushrooms, fish and milk, but they aren't sufficient uh, in, in the doses that we need. So a daily vitamin D3 is something I recommend to uh, most people during the winter months, but for, for darker complexion throughout the year. And the other thing for menstruating women, iron and an absorb- absorbable form of iron can be useful because I found that that's usually deficient in a, in a lot of women. Other than that, multivitamins, nutraceuticals, nootropics like uh, ashwagandha and other sorts of mushrooms, I think they have their place. But again, they have to be individualized, and they can never, never outreplace a good wholesome diet that can be achieved on a budget, which is high in fiber, lots of colors, mostly plants, and 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 this I think is where the struggle is for a lot of people. Because if you live in a certain area in London or, or wherever in the UK for that matter, or even abroad as well, you could be living in a complete food desert where it's super, super hard to actually get access to the cheap, affordable ingredients. You really have to source them out. But not only do you have to source them out, you have to reflect away all of the advertising, the price promotions that prey on the most vulnerable people in society who are price sensitive. So, you know, we've been convinced that we can we can feed a family of four for a quid, whereas actually we need to educate people to look out for the cheaper varieties, teach them how to cook, and also heighten the education around why this is good for our brain health, why it's good for our heart health, and why it's good for our waistlines as well.
2: And and that's so interesting because I think there is so much inf- I think there is so much information out there about that already. You, you know, yeah. even in advertising, where where they tell us to eat something because it's good for us, and and they're doing it in a particular way. But I don't think it goes far enough. I like to think that I, I'm not a chef in any way, shape, or form. I like to to think that I I eat healthily, and then I disrupt that with a bar of chocolate every night. <laughs> but, but some would say a bar of chocolate is is healthy um but but it is one of the biggest challenges isn't it because do you eat frozen peas as opposed to garden peas that are in a tin i mean peas are peas you know how do you know the difference between what is healthy of the variety of peas or beans or or nuts and and what are not healthy because you know i enjoy nuts when i'm having a glass of wine or a beer or a rum and i'm dipping into a bowl of nuts I don't just eat an handful I eat the old bag you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but, but but then I'm told that that much is unhealthy I mean how do you find the balance between w- what is healthy and what is not healthy between like I say a big green pea a mushy green pea uh, a, 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 an almond nut and the cashew nut
1: yeah I you know what I think the messaging is such that it becomes so confusing for the general consumer who just wants to do good by themselves right and in reality regardless of whether you're having the mushy pea a tin pea a frozen pea or a fresh garden pea you're eating peas and that is a much much bigger question and a much bigger action than not even eating pea at all and the whole thing around fats as well and and you know whether you eat cashews or almonds or macadamia a go for the cheapest one. And B, fats aren't there to be demonized. It's the quality of your fats rather than, you know, things like nuts and seeds, which are fantastic for you. In in, you know, a handful or two of those a day are actually have actually been shown to have overarching benefits to things like what about the whole bag? (laughs) What about someone like me who eats the whole bag? Is that unhealthy? It depends how big the bag is, I guess, isn't it? I mean if the bag is like, you know, two handfuls, I'd maybe say, okay, maybe half of that. But you know, if you can have like a good handful of nuts a day, I do not see the negative implications of that. Where fats have a bad rap is because nutrition science, and this is something I see in my my masters as well. We're very dogmatic when it comes to calories in, calories out. We don't really think about the quality of said calories, which is why you know you have like a calorie-controlled meal deal and it would be sold as a healthy alternative. Whereas in reality, it's you know, white rice or um, some other processed ingredients, and it might be under 300 calories a serving, but it's got no nutrition in it. You'd much rather go for the wholesome ingredients that might have more calories but actually have more in it because we're living in a state where people are nutrient poor and calorie dense. And that, that is not the, the situation that we want to be in. So, so to answer your question, it's, you know, it, it's about getting those colors in and whatever the plants are, eat them, whatever the quality nuts and seeds are, eat them, but steer clear from the processed foods, the high sugar foods, and the, uh, the high calorie nutrient poor foods. And the junk foods that most people can identify, and you know you you've had a, a lot of guests on this on the show who' probably come from a position where they 've had psychological issues as a result of experiences, but also I think one thing that doesn't get talked about um, enough is the food and dietary environment that contributes to that as well, and we have an opportunity in this country at least, to change that, to change the accessibility of this food. I'm not saying it's going to wipe out anxiety or any of the uh, mental health issues like low mood and depression, but it's certainly going to contribute, and there is enough evidence now to show that we can eat to mitigate against these problems.
2: What's your position in terms of traditional medicines as opposed to to to, you know plant-based medicines if you like I don't know if I'm using the right terminology but you know swallowing a tablet when you've got a headache as opposed to biting on a piece of broccoli I don't know if broccoli is any good for a headache but I'm just I'm just guessing you know it's green it's healthy or or a spoon of honey you 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 know um would you you know given your health condition that triggered your nutritious journey and and healthy lifestyle or, or at least consumption of foods that improved your your whole well-being you know sometimes the easy answer and the only answer might be traditional medicines like statins to prevent artery problems I mean what's your position in terms of what we should and shouldn't take and I know that you can't tell people what they should and shouldn't yeah, take or you can because you're a GP and yeah. <laughs> we depend on people like you to tell us whether we should or we shouldn't but is there a conflict when you sit in a surgery and you're talking to your your patients you know this holistic approach or healthy food approach as opposed to traditional medicine Rupi?
1: Yeah I think when I'm in a position where i'm giving one-on-one advice there's usually never a conflict because my position as a general practitioner or an AE doctor is to give that person in front of me the options the evidence and empower them to make a decision collectively with them that is in their best interests and if they don't want to change their diet they don't they're not interested in exercise they're not interested in all these other things and they just want to go on a pill then that's the right answer for them. I'll tell them about what they can do, but ultimately I'm not going to be obstructing anyone uh, when it comes to their decisions and what they deem fit. And, you know, statins and a whole bunch of other drugs that I use as a practitioner every day, not myself, but, you know, other people, um, fantastic tools for clinical medicine. An addition to the clinical toolbox is nutritional medicine it's psychological medicine, it's sleep medicine, it's exercise medicine. These are just extra tools in my toolbox that I have at my disposal and people have at their disposal to use. Whether or not they choose to use them or not, it's completely up to them. So the conflict for me arises when, let's say I'm doing this podcast with you, I don't want to give the impression that I'm only of one certain um, school of thinking. It, i'm I'm just inclusive of all the evidence based tools that we have to use um on a in a personal capacity had I not had that moment and it's probably not a second chance moment it's more of like a sliding doors moment for me where I could have gone down one route which is conventional medicine pills for life ablation and maybe multiple interventions going down that purely conventional route versus me going down the lifestyle route, you know, and, and ultimately having an an a massive impact on my career because prior to that I was going to be a surgeon, not a general practitioner or, or anything that I'm doing right now. You know, that I'm glad I, I veered towards that option because it's given me a lot more education. And I think it's certainly the way we need to be moving uh in, in healthcare systems across the world because we know that pharmaceuticals, no matter how amazing they are, whether it be blood pressure tablets, statins, and other preventative medications for things like strokes, they're not the answer. The root cause is how we live our lives, and how to prevent those on a, on a, on a scale.
2: And and it's interesting going back to the point that you said about the cultural changes and how that can impact. You know how food itself. Or nutritious intake can impact communities. You know, to reduce stress, anxiety, things that people experience on a daily basis, especially in the last year, but throughout their lives, in some communities or areas, that lead to what happens next, whatever that might be, criminality or, 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 or domestic violence, whatever the, the stress, anxiety, and, and health issues trigger how do you want to help that situation? Because there is messaging, isn't there? There's trying to reach these communities and sort of saying by improving your your food intake or the quality of the food that you eat and what you eat can make a huge difference, not just on your weight or your appearance. I mean, that's important to some people, but your mental well being. And I, I think that's fascinating because gosh, you could sweep up quite a big number of people in one hit you 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 know if you could convince them to to buy the green peas as opposed to the I'm not saying McDonald's is bad but you know the fast yeah. option on a regular basis you know switch their allegiance to green peas as opposed to you know the big mac is that a I mean it's a challenge that you're 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 taking on it's one
1: of the challenges that you're taking on is it achievable yeah i i want to believe so So I think on a nationwide scale, if we're just thinking about uh, home, the UK, we need to change the culture around food such that it doesn't just become about weight loss. It doesn't just become about aesthetics. It actually becomes something and a tool to do with mental health, well-being, whether it be your heart, your gut. And that's why, you know, on the pod and and through the, the various books and stuff that I do, it's all about the wider implications of nutritional medicine beyond just weight. Obviously, those are very important, but it has to go beyond that. The other thing, in addition to that cultural change around food, is I can't be the only person talking about this as a practitioner. I'm only one person. There's a million people working in the NHS made up of allied health professionals, admin Porters, doctors, you know, everyone in between, we all need to be having that collective voice. And that's one of the reasons why the nonprofit that I started coloring medicine is there to scale up and educate medical students, but also nursing students, and make it a mandatory part of hospital training, such that you don't just talk about safeguarding adults, you don't just talk about vulnerability, you also talk about food. So everyone's talking about it. And the other thing, when it comes to making nutrition more exclusive uh, more inclusive is to remove the exclusivity bias and already if you look up i, I think you know maybe it's a challenge to anyone listening to this if you think about the healthy eating plate what do people think about they think about the piece of broccoli the carrot maybe some roast meat cup of milk um, you know that that healthy eating plate it's completely eurocentric growing up in my house that would have been so far removed from what we were eating. You know, we would have curries, we'd have roti we would have, you know, all this stuff. And you look at all the different people that I come into contact with, whether it would be Korean, whether it be Afro-Caribbean, whether it would be Sri Lankan, you know, completely different plates. So to think that we can provide someone with a health information sheet which has that plate on it and tell them to eat this, so far removed. So we need to break down the Eurocentric barriers nutritional medicine and make it a lot more inclusive which is why in coloring medicine we're actually working with some local chefs from middle eastern backgrounds from jamaican backgrounds to try and actually show people how they can move from just simple rice and peas which is fantastic by the way to you know uh, spinach and and reducing the meat content maybe instead of having goat curry you have uh, a, a black bean curry or you know, Middle Eastern dish. You have less of the lamb. You have more of the uh, the greens and the fatouche salad and all these different things. And people always ask me, you know, why why my recipes are so culturally diverse. It's purely because I'm having conversations with patients on a weekly basis, talking to them about what they're eating, and I, they educate me. They tell me about their food. You know, the, even the nurses, the the Philippine the nurses from the Philippines, they have adobo. You know, I, I do some workshops in my A and E uh, with the staff. And they tell me about their eating habits. I'm like, I learned about their food. It's great. You know, so it's a fantastic way to communicate cross-culturally through the medium of food. Um, and it's something that we need to enhance, particularly in the UK, given that we're so diverse.
2: And it's interesting because where do people get their information? Mostly from TV programs. There's lots yeah. and there have been lots of TV food programs. I know you appear on on some. Do you think they're missing a trick? Because I, I'm not one to watch the reality TV foods, although I said that I, I watched the one last night, baking one, but but it was for a charity. But there was lots of cakes and stuff that are sweet that we shouldn't be eating regularly. I mean, it's all right for a treat. But do you think the TV programs, and there's been so, so many of them, very successful, you know, huge audiences watch these kinds of programs about um, different ways of cooking and what should cook i don't watch them that often are they delivering that message or are they missing a trick
1: i think we're definitely missing a trick and it's something that i've been i try to bang on about every time i'm invited on a show or a morning program so for example this morning um i was uh, doing something with bbc morning live and they they, they will me out to be a talking head and they just want me to talk about, you know, the COVID vaccine and vaccine passports and all that kind of stuff. And I always push back. I'm like, oh, we'll talk about that, but you've got to give me an opportunity to talk about something to do with food. So I talked about green vegetables and how there's a recent study looking at dietary nitrates that you find in broccoli and beetroot and how that improves muscular function. Everyone's going back to the gym next week. You want to look after your your, your muscles, think greens for your guns And so I'm constantly trying to get those messages across. And I was lucky enough to do a show with the BBC iPlayer um, called uh, Thrifty Cooking in the Doctor's Kitchen, where I show people how to cook a meal with three portions of vegetables per person, all using one pan and for under a quid on average across the, the whole series. And I made sure that that series showed things like jambalaya, which is a Creole dish um, from Louisiana. Uh, We had balani, which is an Afghani-inspired flatbread, which are stuffed with loads of greens. Uh, We had your sort of more traditional British um, roast chicken, but with like tons of veggies packed into the pearl barley. And we showed them all the different hacks and tricks that you can do to make sure that most of those recipes come under a quid per person. So... I think to answer your question, yeah, we are missing a trick for sure. We're gradually getting more towards, okay, you know, well-being and trying to scale well-being across the country. And I think if there's anything good to come of COVID, it's that, it's that key shift change in people's mindsets. It's, yes, obesity has a link to COVID, but, you know, just looking after your health is not just about preventing ourselves from having uh, an, an impact from whenever the next pandemic is. It's also about looking after our overall well being, such that we prevent strokes, dementia, cardiovascular issues, all these things that kill multitudes more people than COVID. And, and don't get me wrong, COVID is a nasty, nasty, pandemic is a nasty condition to have, but there are huge, huge issues outside of the current pandemic that we need to address. Uh, and hopefully this will be the trigger to to think about that and, and to wrap this up what would be what would be your one piece
2: of advice for my listeners today what's the one thing that they could do today to start improving their nutritional intake or or, or eating healthier food if they're not already thinking that they're eating healthy what would be the one and the second question to that is where can they find more information about you know the doctor's kitchen or or the recipes that you recommend you you, you know um, I will put obviously your contact social media stuff in the description on the podcast so I'd encourage people to go there but what why they've got you rupee would you suggest they they do you're getting some free gp nutritional advice here guys so take it in
1: (laughs) (laughs) if i could offer one thing it would be think of the mantra of just one more in your head every time you sit down to eat a meal can you add just one more portion of fruit vegetables nuts or seeds at every meal time and that can be as simple as, you know, handful of, of uh, walnuts. It could be as simple as even if you're having a pizza, nothing wrong without having it every now and then. But can you add you know some roasted asparagus that's in season right now? We get it all, all around the UK. Can you add that as a side dish? Or if you're making a curry, can you add some spinach leaves to that? Can you just add one more every mealtime? Every time you sit down to eat, just think about adding one more. And the the recipes and all that kind of stuff there's tons of them for free on the bbc website there's tons of free on my website the doctor's and there's a newsletter where we we give free recipes every week as well um and the pod if people want to dive deeper into how to support mental health how to support immune health how to support brain health etc cetera, etc cetera, i've been privileged to speak with researchers from around the world all about nutritional medicine their research and translating that into what that looks like onto people's plates
2: and your podcast that when you talk about the pod you're talking about the the podcast what's the name of your podcast for people to tune into and why we're here why why do you set up a podcast what is it you want people to to learn from it
1: yeah so the, the doctor's kitchen is the podcast and I guess the reason why I started it was, A, I was forced by my publisher, (laughs) so they were like, you need to do a podcast to help promote the book, and I was like, okay, fine, Um, but then I really got into it, so I, I managed to speak to some incredible researchers where we were able to have a lot more nuanced discussion about, let's say, eating for immunity, so most people think about eating to boost your immune system, which is a bit of a misnomer, We want to be supporting our immune system. We want to understand what our immune system actually is, what it comprises of, where it's based, and what are the roles it has beyond just fighting off bacteria. It's actually one of the main systems that we use to fight off cancer cells and clear any dysfunctional cells that could lead to growths. So, you know, making sure that you've got a well-functioning immune system, using diet and all the other things as well, like stress has a massive impact on it. Walking through green spaces has an impact on it. You know, all these different things we could talk about for like an hour and a half, two hours, maybe even longer. And so that's why, you know, podcast is a great way of having conversations and delivering nuance, because, as you know, when you're on character limited social media platforms, there's only so much you can actually engage with in a conversation that's appreciative of loads of different sides. So uh, I think it's a great thing that you're doing, and I think it's a great endeavor.
2: I think one of the—I uh, uh, always say it's the last question. It never is, but I, I think it's how do you measure? I mean, if your if your ambition is or your drive is to lose weight, and so you go on a low carb um, carbohydrates diet, you, you, and you're or you're doing one of these kind of keto diets, and I know you don't subscribe to Diet Tree, but but if you if you're trying to measure how these culinary medicine or or, or nutritious intake. Is impacting on your your well being. How can you measure it, or is it just like you said when you did what you did, you didn't have any more of these heart problems, these kind of vascular problems, and so it was obviously clear that your mum's advice worked. You know, change your diet, son. You you know, it didn't take an Einstein to to kind of do what what mums always do. So, how do you measure? Just as a as an end note, how can people measure? whether or can't they i mean it's just you feel better you look better you're not as anxious as you were before
1: i think people come to nutrition or nutritional medicine through two main buckets right if you're a if you've got something that you're trying to improve whether it be weight whether it be anxiety whether it be a skin problem or the other bucket, which are people just trying to optimize their lifestyle so they prevent anything going from uh, going on in the future. And both are completely valid. So I think to, to measure the latter one, people will use those parameters of, of weight if that's the primary endpoint. But I always beg the question to people to ask themselves, why are they trying to do that? Why are you trying to lose weight? Is it because... You know, you've got a, a negative self-image. Is it because you've been told to? Is it because you want to or because you believe you should be doing something? And so always go into the root cause of, of why you're doing that. And the simple parameters would be things like weight loss. And, and if people are interested, that I've done a whole series on, on weight loss and why going on a diet is perhaps the worst thing you can do. And then also, you know, keto, uh, even though, you know, I, I'm not like Against or for any particular diets, but Keto does have some therapeutic uses that we we dove into on the podcast as well um, with we, one of the only uh, keto dietitians in the UK. And you know those are quite easy to measure you know, how you feel at day thirty, day sixty, day ninety. The other parameters, I think you have to be a lot more intuitive and you have to invest time as well. you have to invest time and ask yourself those questions on a weekly basis. Do you feel lighter? How are your energy levels? What is your sleep like? What does your skin feel like? How does your gut feel? All these different subtle parameters can change, but it does take time and it takes consistency. And so that's why I always hasten to, to add, you know, don't think of it as a one month or a three month regime. Think of it as a lifelong regime, because ultimately we want to be living healthy, happier lives throughout our lifetime, rather than just for summertime when we're looking when we want to look good for the beach or wherever that beach is whether it's in the UK or abroad <laughs> <laughs> right now
2: it's nowhere Dr. Yeah. Rupee, thank you so much for coming on the show it's been interesting and very different to what my audience will be used to uh, and what I'm used to talking about but it's been fascinating and and really interesting so thank you very much for your for your time and good luck with your mission and message
1: my pleasure mate and back back to you as well
2: Healthy living is as important as it ever was, perhaps even more after the stressful year we've all had. And I, for one, think that Dr. Rupi's medical insight into nutrition was fascinating. If you, like myself, are interested in learning more, then you can head over to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. It really is insightful. I'll also be joining Dr. Rupi's show to talk about my book, An Experience Inside Prison. Thanks for listening to this podcast and please share and follow us on social media. It would be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this podcast, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by j ro Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.